We have a number of men in our congregation who are either former law enforcement, now retired, or current active law enforcement. And it reminded me of a sheriff deputy that pulled a woman over. In his estimation, she had been speeding. He pulled her over, approached her window. She wrote it down. He said, ma'am, may I see your license? She said, well, I don't have one. My license has been revoked. I had a DUI recently, and so I don't have a license. He said, okay, may I see your proof of insurance and registration? She said, I'm not sure where that would be, because actually this isn't my car. I stole this from my neighbor, but before I stole it, I shot him. Pretty sure he's dead, so I stuffed his body in the trunk. Well, that, ups, that made the deputy nervous. He didn't know what to think, so he immediately called backup, and in just a matter of minutes, backup came. His sergeant came. He approached the car and the window and said, ma'am, may I see your license? She opened up her purse, gave him her license. He said, may I see your proof of insurance and your, uh, and, and your registration? She opened up the car pocket right there, and she gave him both items. He said, ma'am, I need to see in your trunk. Uh, he went to the trunk, opened it up, and there was nothing there but a jack, car jack and a lug wrench and a spare tire. He then uh, spoke to the other deputy for a few moments and went to the car again and said, ma'am, I don't understand. Um, the deputy who pulled you over said that you did not have a license, a valid license. You had received a, a DUI, and so your license will revoke. He said you did not have proof of insurance, and you did not have a proof of registration. He also said that this isn't your vehicle. You stole it from your neighbor after you shot him and stuffed his dead body in the trunk. He said, ma'am, none of that is true. She said, yeah, and I bet he told you I was speeding too. <laughs> now, you, you might try that sometime. <laughs> or, or maybe not. I'm not sure. That has absolutely nothing to do with this sermon. <laughs> Nehemiah was starting to encounter serious discouragement among those families that were part of his volunteer construction crews. His people were discouraged and disheartened. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, records just how Nehemiah handled that discouragement. This past Sunday morning, we mentioned four basic causes of discouragement that were present in Nehemiah's situation. The people had suffered loss. The people lost strength, lost vision, lost confidence, and lost security. There were other factors that can potentially contribute to someone's discouragement, but those four were the ones that most affected Nehemiah's people. This morning, we're going to find the solutions to that discouragement. Just as there were four causes, there are also four cures. Beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 23, Nehemiah prescribes four basic cures for his people's discouragement. These four cures are still relevant to us, so please don't miss them. Cure number one, Nehemiah directed their efforts toward another objective. Another objective. Verse 13, Therefore I, Nehemiah, positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, 
And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Notice, these people had weapons of war. Remember, people had been doing some serious construction nonstop for almost one solid month. Some of them were doing double shifts. The situation had changed, though, because now those same people were called on to battle. The people had to defend themselves against these antagonists, Ambalad, Tobiah, and some other anti-Semitic associations that had designed a scheme to stop that construction. Those evil men purposed to invade that project with no advance warning, stop all construction, tear down completely what had been erected on the wall, and then massacre Nehemiah and his construction crews. That was their intent. So the people were being forced to defend themselves and even fight for the right to continue construction. So entire families were together, both building and now battling. These families were building, continuing to build, and now battling. Please notice, Nehemiah didn't permit a discouraging situation to stop him. He didn't dump this project because his people had been threatened. He didn't shut down his dream and return to Persia. Instead, what he did was to redirect his people to another objective. He redirected them from constantly building and building and building to now also battling. He refocused them to another objective and that helped them maintain momentum. Because of his particular circumstances, Nehemiah had been forced to rethink strategies. And that's sometimes a good thing. Um, mental genius Albert Einstein once made this interesting statement. He said, the significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when those problems occurred. One more time. This is so relevant. The significant problems we face, even as a nation, cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when those problems occurred. In contrast to Einstein, though, instead of escalated thinking and imaginative creativity, some congregations, such as ours, tend to react to problems using the same tired, old, worn-out strategies. As an example, Dakota Indian tribal wisdom states, if we're riding a dead horse then it's probably best to dismount. <laughs> Evangelical congregations, though, sometimes attempt other more traditional strategies on dead horses, such as purchasing a stronger whip and beating the dead horse, finding another and better rider for the dead horse, arguing that we've never ridden a dead horse like this before, <laughs> appointing a committee to study the dead horse, <laughs> arranging a visit to other congregations to see how they ride dead horses, changing the church constitution to specify that, quote, horses will not be permitted to die, harnessing several dead horses together in hopes to increase speed, preaching sermons insisting that no horse is too dead to ride, providing additional funding to increase the dead horse's performance, and then this one, promoting the dead horse to a position on the church board. <laughs> now, 
those were tongue-in-cheek, but in some cases, not that far from reality. Nehemiah rethought through his problem and his situation and then redirected his people to another objective. That objective acted as a diversion and helped them minimize discouragement and continue momentum building. Second, Nehemiah directed their attention to the greatness of God. The greatness of God. This is the reason we read Psalm 145 and we sang the song we learned this morning. Verse 14, And I, Nehemiah, looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not, notice, do not be afraid of them. Nehemiah told his people not to get all emotional about the situation. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be paranoid. Don't be frightened of a possible potential invasion. Being afraid is a common human emotion. During the past 24 months, during this pandemic, Dr. Fauci has contributed much to that unfortunate emotion. And we have learned that Fauciism is not unrelated to fascism. Uh, a bureaucrat has been permitted to literally shut down our nation. Statistics indicate people in an elevated emotional state are 144% more likely to have an automobile accident than those that aren't. Also, one out of five victims from traffic fatalities had an argument in the previous six hours before their accident. Nehemiah told his people not to get all emotional. He said, don't be paranoid, don't be frightened, don't be terrified. Then Nehemiah gave them the reason not to be afraid. Verse 14 continues. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Notice this phrase in the middle part of this verse. Nehemiah said, remember the Lord, great and awesome. Question, where had the people's attention been? Up to this point, the people's attention had been on the rubbish and debris and mortar and all the mess on the ground. The people's entire focus had been on all the rubbish and debris and the people's focus should have been on the Lord. So Nehemiah said to the people, remember the Lord. Unless there was some dramatic, immediate emergency situation where someone gets desperate and cries out to God. Other than that, people that are discouraged most often focus on themselves and focus on their unfortunate circumstances, and in doing so, these people forget about God. Sometimes we are intimidated by our problems and our situations and forget that we have a problem solver. Sometimes we get so inundated in problems and how can we solve them that we completely forget that God has a solution. Nehemiah understood that. So he turned the people's attention away from themselves and from their less than desirable circumstances and he turned their attention to God. He said, people, remember the Lord. Isaiah 6, 26 and verse 3, you, meaning God, will keep him in perfect peace. Perfect peace is better than discouragement. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Someone whose focus is on God. 
Question, how do we remember the Lord? As Nehemiah suggested we do, there are three practical things we can do. One, call to mind what God has said. Call to mind what God has said. In order to remember the Lord, we need to call to mind what God has said. To cure discouragement, we need to concentrate on God, and we can do that through remembering some actual specific statements God has made in Scripture. There's a gospel song some of us that are second and third generation Christians used to sing in church. Uh, It's not sung often now. That song is called Standing on the Promises. I won't sing it. Uh, That would be cruel and unusual. Uh, The last time I sang in public, the angels cried, and heaven's mask was flown in half mass. So it it was ugly, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, A professor of chemistry, mathematics, and civil engineering named Russell Carter published that song in 1886. As a child, I remember... Uh, Our song director, he wasn't called a worship leader, that wasn't in vogue at that time, but our song director, Mr. Stouffer, stood up there and he encouraged us to stop sitting around on the premises and instead start standing on the promises. The problem is, how can we stand on God's promises if we don't know what those promises are? Someone has estimated there are some 7,474 promises made from God to man mentioned in scripture, but most of us wouldn't be able to name more than a half dozen of them. One of the more practical means of finding those promises is to purchase one of a number of different books that itemize in alphabetical order all the biblical promises from God. The late professor, Dr. R.C. Sprawl, one of my favorites, an apologist, uh, has an excellent book on those promises. Nehemiah's instructions are to take our minds and our focus off the mess around us and instead focus more on what God has said. Claim those promises. Second, call to mind what God has done. Call to mind what God has done. Meaning, remember what God has done for us at those specific instances where we have faced problems and crisis before. Remember how God pulled us through some difficult times before, and then based on those past experiences, we can then become more confident he can pull off a repeat performance. That's the reason the most enthusiastic people in this congregation shouldn't necessarily be newer Christians per se. The most fired up, most pumped up people in this room should be persons that have been Christians for an extended period of time. That's because those people have a backlog of incredible experiences where God came through for them before, and after reflecting on those times, we can have more confidence that he can continue to come through for us. One more time. Call to mind, meaning remember what God has done. And God has done some miraculous stuff. It reminds me of an antagonistic atheist who uh, questioned a Christian woman. He said, I cannot believe that Christians are so naive and so gullible. Do you actually believe that gullible thing, that Jonah thing in the Bible? I mean, how could Jonah have survived for that length of time in the stomach of a huge fish? I don't understand. Please explain to me just how that could have happened. This woman responded, I don't know 
how that happened, but I'll ask Jonah myself when I get to heaven. In his stubborn skepticism, he retorted, and what if Jonah's not in heaven? What if he's in hell? She said, okay, then you can ask him. (laughs) Call to mind what God has said and then call to mind what God has done on our behalf before. Third, call to mind who God is. Who God is. Verse 14 said, remember the Lord, then notice, great and awesome. God in his utter awesomeness is greater than discouragement. God in his awesomeness is greater than that thing that caused that discouragement. Don't ever say it cannot be done because if God orchestrated it, if God desires it, if God is in it, then it can be done. God can take something impossible and turn it from a question mark into an explanation point. God can do that. Henrietta Mears was a Christian, was the Christian education director at First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood during the first half of the 1900s. Under her direction, the Sunday school attendance went from 400 to more than 6,500. She also taught the college-age students in addition to younger adults. She founded a now-famous Christian camp in California called Forest Home. Over 50,000 campers go there on an annual basis. She was also the founder and director of Gospel Light Publications. She had amazing spiritual influence. She, more than anyone else, was influential in inspiring Bill and Vonetta Bright to found the enormous international parachurch organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called CRU. That organization literally started in her home across from the UCLA campus. Dr. Billy Graham said she had more influence on him than any woman other than his mother. It is said she was responsible for inspiring over 600 young men to become professional ministers. At one time, it was said, Miss Mears led more people to Jesus Christ than any one person on the West Coast. Before her death, she was asked what she would do differently if she had her life to live all over again. Her response was immediate. She said, I would believe God more. I would believe God more. I confess I don't believe God as much as I should, but I want to believe Him more than I do. That should be our desire. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. David said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And then notice this question. From whence, meaning from where, comes my help? David said, where is the source of my help? Where am I going to find help? The answer to that question is found in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Remember who God is. He is the creator God of this universe. He made heaven and made earth, so he's more than capable of pulling us out of that situation that's causing us discouragement. It is said that Muhammad Ali, in his prime and before his Parkinson's disease, was on a plane preparing to take off. And the flight attendant said to him, "Uh, Mr. Ali, it is a privilege to have you on this flight. Uh, Would you please fasten your seatbelt, though? Um, The famous boxer responded, I don't want to fasten my seatbelt. She said, but federal regulations require you fasten your seatbelt. 
um, he still wouldn't budge. He was resistant. She said, sir, please, you don't seem to understand. The captain cannot take off until all of us have fastened our seatbelts. Muhammad Ali protested once more. But I'm Superman, he said. And Superman don't need no seatbelt. This a flight attendant bent down got into his face and said, no, Mr. Ali, you're mistaken. Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) People, I am not Superman. I'm not even close. And neither are you. We both need God. And considering the deteriorating conditions in our own nation, considering the escalating crisis in Ukraine and Europe, And considering the problems communist China is causing, then we need him now more than ever have we needed him before. In summation, Nehemiah directed the people's attention Godward, calling to mind what God had said, calling to mind what God had done, and calling to mind just who God is. Number three, Nehemiah directed them to balance their building and battling. Balance their building and battling. We're going to spend some time on this one. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing. This is what had happened. Um, some Jewish people that resided outside Jerusalem uh, near those um, antagonists and enemies of Jerusalem had heard this and snitched on them. And told Nehemiah, well, Nehemiah's enemies then learned that Nehemiah had learned from those snitches about their secret invasion. So that invasion was temporarily suspended. Not altogether canceled, but suspended. And so after that, that all of us, Nehemiah said, all of us returned to the wall. Everyone felt free to continue construction. Everyone to his work. Verse 16, so it was from that time on that half my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Notice even though Jerusalem, Jerusalem's enemies had suspended this invasion, Nehemiah still had half the people return to the construction site. And then he had the other half continue to arm themselves and stand guard against another possible potential invasion. Half were building and half were battling. That is a balanced perspective. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves. The burdens would be, you know, stone and brick and mortar timber, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Verse 18, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me, Nehemiah. The trumpeter stood beside Nehemiah. Nehemiah created a balance. Half the people he scheduled to continue building and the other half he told to prepare to battle if there were another invasion. And notice that even those that were doing construction were also prepared to battle. 
According to verses 17 and 18, Nehemiah also required the builders, the construction laborers, to arm themselves against a secret invasion. Each man was to have both a tool and a weapon. In one hand, he held a trowel so he could spread the mortar, and the other hand was on his sword in its sheath at his side. So each one was forced to become ambidextrous to some degree. Um, He had a tool and a weapon. Uh, Nehemiah continued to build, but notice he was also prepared to battle. Verse 21, so we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. That's night time. Verse 22, at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. Verse 23, so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. So these people were building and battling nonstop, 24-7. Someone said this about the 19th century British novelist Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens should be a familiar name. He wrote novels and short stories. He authored the famous book, The Tale of Two Cities, and he authored that uh, favorite that we remember at Christmas called The Christmas Carol featuring Mr. Scrooge. Uh, Someone said this about Charles Dickens. Listen, he did everything as if he did nothing else. That is focus. He did everything as if he did nothing else. That described those people that were assigned to this project. Those people were focused, laser beam focused, to where all that mattered to them was constructing this wall and then preparing to defend it. See the balance Nehemiah has created? Their enemies threatened them, but the construction didn't stop. The people both continued to build and also prepared themselves to fight. Nehemiah demanded a balance between building and battling. The famous London preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whom I might add, has been the most often quoted preacher in modern times, other than biblical preachers such as Paul, the most often quoted preacher. Charles Spurgeon desired that same balance Nehemiah had. In 1865, he started publishing a monthly magazine called The Sword and Trowel. That hardback copy is a collection of some of those different uh, editions of that magazine. The sword, meaning the sword in one hand, the trowel for building in the other hand. He said, quote, it was a record of combat with sin, battling, and labor for the Lord, building. I believe there's a strong application here to the church. Christianity needs to be more balanced. The church of Jesus Christ cannot just build and also cannot just battle. It needs to do much of both. Notice, The church builds through the spiritual edification of individual congregants. Through the spiritual edification, building up of individual congregants. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. In his instructions to the Corinthian church, Paul said, let all things, not some things, let all things be done for edification. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11 reads, we are to edify one another. One reason we meet together 
in corporate worship on Sunday mornings is in order to experience mutual edification. In the original Greek language, this word translated into our language as edify and edification meant to construct something, to build something, as in constructing a building. This was a construction word. Shadow Mountain Church exists in part to build us up so that we can become mature, strong, robust Christians. But then at the same time, in addition to that spiritual building, we are also instructed to battle. Notice the church battles through defending the Christian faith. The church battles through defending the historic Christian faith. The Christian faith is that total sum of essential doctrine, essential teaching that constitutes Christianity. The Christian faith is that total sum of non-negotiable, essential, fundamental tenets of doctrine and teaching that constitute Christianity. And we are to battle against anything that could infringe on Christianity. Notice what Jude said about this in his small book. Jude is a small letter, so small we call it a postcard. has just one chapter. Jude verse 3 Jude said, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting, meaning encouraging you to contend earnestly for the faith. That means the Christian faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend means to fight for something, to go to battle for something. Jude said that we are to actually battle for the historic Christian faith. Notice Jude said we are to contend earnestly. And earnestly means to do something with serious and intense conviction. So this isn't something casual, this fighting. This isn't shadow boxing. We are in a no-hose-barred, knock-down, drag-out fight to the death to protect and preserve the Christian faith. There is a word we sometimes use to describe specialists that excel in that particular action. Um, that word is apologist and apologetics. Apologetics is from a Greek word that means to give a defense of something, to defend something, either in print or audibly, verbally, uh, to give a defense of something. There are different categories of apologetics. We don't have time to get into them, but in its basic form, notice the definition, Christian apologetics is the science and discipline of defending Christian doctrines through systematic argumentation, debate, and discourse. And there are a number of popular apologists. Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, his son Sean McDowell, J. Werner Wallace, one of my favorites, Frank Turek, Gary Habermas, said to be the foremost expert on the resurrection, uh, William Lane Craig, gentleman from Britain, brilliant man, John Lennox, J.P. Moorhead, Norman Geisler, who is now deceased, C.S. Lewis, who is now deceased, Kim Ham, founder of Answers in Genesis and founder of the Ark Encounter, Michael Lacona, Hank Hanegraaff, R.C. Sproul, who is also now in heaven, and on and on and on. These are men who were proficient at a high degree of proficiency at apologetics. 
Um, the principal verse used to reinforce that practice is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and notice, always, meaning at all times, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And then, then notice how we are to do that, how we are to defend the faith. With meekness and fear. Fear means respect. That last phrase means apologists aren't supposed to be bullies, even in debates. Scripture teaches us that we are to contend and battle and fight against those personalities and teaching that infringes on the Christian faith. Now, don't misunderstand this. We don't mean non-essential, secondary controversial passages, problem passages, where good Christians can't agree to disagree on. Questionable passages that are either so complex or so obscure that there's no definitive answer. Now we can fuss about those things, and some of us do. We can uh, debate those things vigorously, some of us do, but that's not where we are to do actual battle. Jude means we are to fight against false teachers and false doctrine that undermines the essential, non-negotiable, fundamental tenets and teachings of historic Christianity. We are to battle teaching that contradicts actual, non-negotiable Christian tenets. In a previous congregation, I remember a gentleman received Jesus after a morning service, in my office actually, he prayed to receive Jesus, and he was so excited about his conversion experience, he went to his job on Monday morning and announced his decision uh, that he had made. And after hearing that, a workman said, oh, that is fantastic. I'm a Christian too. Well, that was a total surprise to this new convert because those men had worked beside one another for probably a decade. And this man, all that time, had never mentioned Jesus Christ, had never mentioned Christianity. So this was a shock. But, this once, but once this excited convert shared his salvation announcement, this man added, uh, so you should also understand that you aren't actually a true Christian until you speak in tongues. It turned out that this man was part of a non-traditional, smaller Pentecostal denomination called United Pentecostals, or Oneness Pentecostals, that teach that tongues is essential to salvation. Now, please don't miss this. Traditional Pentecostalism doesn't teach that. Pentecostal denominations, such as Assemblies of God and the Foursquare denomination, none of them teach that heretical doctrine. So don't, don't connect those groups to this. He was part of a movement, a smaller movement, that taught tongues is essential to salvation. And this now confused convert said to me, I don't understand. I thought being a Christian meant receiving Jesus. But this man said, that's not enough, and that I'm required to speak in tongues. How can that be? And I responded, it can't be. He's wrong. He's completely wrong. The totality of someone's conversion is not contingent on him speaking in some ecstatic, nonsensical language. That is a false teaching. I then turn to the Gospel of John where the word believe in different forms, as in believing on Jesus to receive salvation, is mentioned some 91 times. Because believing 
on Jesus is the singular requirement for salvation. Tongues is a controversial spiritual gift that Christians can agree to disagree on. Some believe that gift fulfilled its intended purpose and function as a sign gift before the end of the first century and is now no longer viable and available to us. That position is called cessationism. Others believe that gift is still viable and available and that some Christians do receive that spiritual gift. That position is called continuationism. We don't need, I have a position that I can't go into at the moment, but we don't need to get hung up on that debate between cessationism and continuationism because spiritual gifts were never meant to be an essential doctrine. Spiritual gifts do not contribute to someone's salvation. Spiritual gifts are the result of someone's salvation. Spiritual gift, including the gift of languages, have absolutely no bearing on someone becoming a Christian. A Christian is someone that has believed on and received Jesus Christ. To require someone to also receive a particular controversial spiritual gift in order to complete someone's salvation is a false teaching. And I had to correct that. I pushed back. I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. But if I love truth and I do, then I have to fight the lie that infringes on that truth. There are definite situations where we are to contend, where we are to fight, where we are to do battle against certain people and certain doctrines that contradict the Christian faith. I didn't mention this first service, but two doors down is a Methodist church, a church a part of the United Methodist denomination. That denomination is in serious trouble because that denomination is fighting over the LGBTQ issue, the issue of human sexuality. They, some congregations in that denomination are ordaining gay people to ministry. Some are performing same-sex marriages. Now, some are doing as public libraries sometimes do, inviting drag queens in to participate on the platform in the service and participate in worship. Well, there's a large percentage of United Methodists that are fighting back against this. Probably half the denomination resides in the U.S., the other half resides in Africa. The ones in Africa are loyal and committed uh, to biblical truth and are fighting back. And there is going to be a divide in that denomination. It will experience a schism and it will be broken in two. It's going to happen. But it's okay because there's a group of them, a large group of them, that are standing for traditional sexual values and biblical morality. And they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. But at some point they're going to see that fight is not going to, and they're going to back out and bring churches with them. And I wish them the best. But I also believe we should do as Nehemiah did and create a balance between building and battling. One of the secrets to Christian success is balance. Most Christians I have found are imbalanced. Spiritual balance is essential. Building and battling. But doing both in balance. Operating from a biblical balanced and philosophical perspective. Let me mention an illustration of an actual congregation that missed that balance. There was a church in Orange County, California, that an evangelist started in the middle of orange groves. There were actually orange groves in Southern California at one time. And this church started just prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
This was during the beginning part of the Cold War. Some of us that are older uh, remember uh, that the Cold War was this geopolitical tension created between the United States and the then Soviet Union. And we had to do these drills, these drills in grade school called duck and cover. Some of us remember that. And we had like fire drills, we did the duck and cover drills. In addition, we were told to duck under our desk and cover our heads as if that maneuver would somehow lessen the impact of a Soviet nuclear warhead. I didn't understand it then, I don't understand it now. This church was started during that era. It became famous throughout Southern California for its rigorous stand against communism. I might add, in the beginning decades of Billy Graham's career, he was an outspoken critic of communism, as he should have been. This congregation almost equated nationalism and patriotism to Christianity. A patriot is someone that is a vigorous supporter of his nation and is prepared to defend his nation against enemies and or detractors. I'm curious if we have in these United States the same percentage of patriots that it seems Ukraine has. What percentage of our people would dare kneel in front of a Russian tank in an attempt to stop that invasion from taking what isn't theirs to have? I'm concerned because I'm convinced the woke crowd would run the opposite direction. I contend Christians should be committed patriots. But patriotism and Christianity are not one and the same thing. That particular congregation conducted an ongoing crusade against communism through sponsoring massive letter-writing campaigns and massive literature distribution campaigns and inviting politicians and other guest speakers to address the threat of communist infiltration into our culture. In the 60s, there was a conservative political climate across Orange County, actually across California. It was a conservative state at one time. And the paranoia created from that Cold War and that Soviet threat brought hundreds of people into that congregation. That church exploded into more than 3,000 people. But the church concentrated so much on battling communism that it neglected building up Christians. And the result was predictable. That church started to deteriorate and deteriorate. And that congregation that once numbered in the thousands is now smaller than our congregation. The reason that happened is because things got out of balance. Someone said truth that is out of balance is heresy. And it was for them. The people were so preoccupied in battling communism's detrimental influence that there was no commitment left to building up the saints. There was no expositional preaching. There were no discipleship courses. And that spiritual neglect left that particular congregation undernourished, underdeveloped, unequipped, and unable to do what God had called them to do. And as a result, the church suffered. Now, don't misunderstand this. I am convinced Christians should be fully informed and engaged in the political process. Christians should vote, and not to vote is sin. Christians should run for political office. Christians should donate monies to deserving political candidates and campaigns. Christians should contact their senators and representatives and tell them to vote no 
on leftist piece of legislation. Christians should march for life. Christians should sign petitions and register peacefully, register protest at appropriate venues, such as protesting critical race theory at school board meetings, as some of us have done. And a thousand and one other things, because political activism, I believe, is something this congregation encourages us. Part of the reason people we're in the mess we're in as a nation is because as christians and as a church we have become unconcerned unaffiliated unconnected disengaged and sound asleep and i think our primary problem is in our pulpits we need more preachers to issue a cease and desist order on these feel-good self-help Joel Osteen sermons and instead speak out against societal and cultural phenomena that is in a direct contradiction to a biblical worldview. We need men from a biblical perspective to stand up and speak out against socialism, against Marxism, communism, wokeism, and wokeism is nothing more than cultural Marxism, progressivism, leftism, transgenderism, racism, totalitarianism, identity politics, mandates, and the great reset. People, these things are not from God. And we need to speak out. We need not spiritual pacifists in the pulpit. We need warriors in the pulpit. We need to understand that we are fighting the most intense internal battle this nation has ever seen. And doing business as usual isn't going to solve our problems and isn't going to save this nation from extinction. We must do battle. But, and don't miss this, that being said, the final instructions... Jesus assigned the church before he left this earth was to preach the gospel. Our mission is still the great commission. We are to present people the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to reach them, bring them to salvation, and then teach them, disciple them, and then let them loose on unsaved friends, relatives, associations, and neighbors. I am a conservative. I'm a theological conservative. And as an extension of that, I'm a political conservative, and I'm just conservative. Um, but conservatism doesn't get someone to heaven. Someone can be a fiscal, social, and political conservative and go straight to hell if he doesn't have Jesus. It concerns me to hear some candidates, especially during, you know, election seasons, some Christians go on and on about a particular political candidate, and I understand that. We all have preferences and favorites. But they, they just talk about this candidate all the time and then completely ignore Jesus. Jesus literally gets no time and attention from them. People, I'm sorry, that's an imbalance. Understand something. Jesus Christ is scheduled to return to this earth at some point where he will set up rule and reign as the promised Messiah from Jerusalem and bless the entire earth. He is going to return, but he's not scheduled to return on Air Force One. I'm sorry. People, the ultimate solution to our problems isn't government. It never has been. The ultimate and permanent solution to our problems is God. And in particular, salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah instructed the people to balance building and battling. And the church should do the same. Number four, and I'm finished. Just a moment. I think, Nehemiah directed them to come together. 
to come together. Verse 19, then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, meaning there's so much more to do. And we are separated, notice, we are separated far from one another on the wall. Verse 20, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Let me explain what has happened. The people had been separated from one another because they'd been assigned different sections of the wall to construct. Different families were in different areas, and and this is a a long wall, and so um, they had to be separated from one another to be able to complete construction on all parts of the wall at approximately the same time. So Nehemiah decided, since the people are all spread out, he decided on a periodic basis to bring them together, together for moral support and encouragement and strength. So Nehemiah said to the people, if you hear the trumpet sound, remember the trumpeter stood beside him, if you hear the trumpet sound, then leave your workstation on the wall. Just put down your construction tools, leave and come together right here where the trumpeter and I are standing. So at periodic time intervals, there would be this sound from the trumpet and all the people that had been separated from one another doing construction on different sections on the wall would congregate together at that particular location where the trumpeter would be standing. The reason Nehemiah had the people do that is because there was incredible emotional strength in numbers. No one can successfully fight discouragement alone. It is true there are intentional times where we must be alone with God. But there are also other times where we should be with other people that can encourage us. Two people can battle discouragement better than one. If I am discouraged, then there are particular people I know I can call on and find encouragement. And then there are other times if I am discouraged, there are other particular people I know I don't want to call on because those people just add to that discouragement, like sort of just pile on. These people make matters worse. I have said before, some people bring happiness wherever they go, and then some people bring happiness whenever they go, and those are the people I don't call. Nehemiah called for his people to come together for mutual encouragement. Multiple sets of shoulders can bear a burden better than one, and that is apparent throughout Scripture. Elijah needed Elisha. David needed Jonathan. Moses needed Aaron. Ruth needed Naomi. Paul needed Epaphroditus, and then at a subsequent time, he needed Timothy. We need one another to help us push through discouragement. I am so grateful to our tech team. Our tech team is so, one, competent, and second, so committed and faithful. Uh, We hardly ever notice them unless something goes wrong up here and everybody turns around and stares at them. And that's not right. You shouldn't do that. Because most often it's not their fault. It's something I did or something in the system. Uh, These guys are great, and I appreciate all of them. And I'm grateful that our tech team has live-streamed our services during the past 24 months of COVID. Um, I understand though, and I've spoken to some, uh, some congregants, some of our people are still cautious and careful about getting out. Uh, I mean, they're avoiding crowds altogether because of extenuating circumstances such as prior medical concerns. Um, It is better for them, they feel, to continue isolating themselves. And I respect that. I'm not a physician. I'm not in a position to tell them, uh, you know, 
I think it's safe to get out. I'm no use. I don't tell them. I don't give them medical advice. But that's not most people. Most people have returned to a normal, basically normal pre-COVID routine. But some of them have gotten used to sitting at home on Sunday mornings, having some coffee, munching on a bagel, and watching the service on a computer screen. And I understand that's convenient. You can do that in your PJs. Don't have to get dressed, get in the car, drive here. I understand that's convenient and that's very comfortable. But the problem is that's not church. It's not church. The Greek word translated as church is the word ekklesia. And ekklesia means an assembling together. And it is a called out assembly. God is called out for himself. It means a gathering together. It doesn't represent Lone Ranger Christianity. It is a coming together. That's not happening at home. That's happening on Sunday mornings here in this building. Nehemiah brought the people together for the same reason we should bring our people together to be encouraged. Hebrews 10.25 reads that we are not to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is the essence of Ecclesia right there. That is the church. We are not to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Paraphrased, the author of Hebrews said, don't be missing church as some are in the habit of doing. And then he continues, but encouraging one another and so much the more meaning more encouragement as you see the day approaching. That day might have been a reference to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, although most theologians believe that day is a reference to the day Jesus returns for us. So that we are in the end times. The closer we get to Jesus' return, the more we should meet together, the more we should encourage one another. So for those who are watching online, get yourself back in church. If we're at a campsite sitting at a bonfire, I would suggest performing an experiment. Remove one of the embers from that bonfire, not with your bare fingers, no, but remove with some tongs one of the embers from that bonfire and set it some distance away from the fire, a matter of feet away from that fire, so that that ember is alone and no longer a part of that bonfire together with the other embers. If we do that and we observe carefully that isolated ember, then we will see that it burns out long before the other embers do. Just as embers need the fire from one another to remain hot, we need to remain connected to one another or our own spiritual fire will also die. Even as individuals, we are still better together. Let's bow our heads. Father, I can only hope and pray that this has made sense. I don't want to be imbalanced. I know sometimes I am. I don't want our church to be imbalanced. We are here to reach people, mature them in the faith, build them up, edify them. But at the same time, we have to defend the Christian faith and we have to defend ourselves against all the cultural phenomena that is such an infringement on that faith.
these doctrines of demons, Paul called them, that are circulating all around us. We need to be informed. We need to fight back. We need to push back. We cannot remain silent. So God, I pray that this will somehow encourage us to be the balanced Christians you have called us to be. I just pray that we'll not forget these things. We'll take them to heart and uh, permit them to make a difference in us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.